You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, Yep, so chapter 10, starting at verse 22 of the book of John. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good works, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why do you then accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptising in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, We thank you for uh, the reminder of who Jesus is. And so we pray that you'll be with us as we uh, learn more about that, as we think about the questions the Jews had and the answers that he gave to them. Amen. Do you ever have doubts about whether Christianity is true? I'm going to be honest, sometimes I do. I mean, I had massive doubts before I became a Christian, but even 20 years later, there are times when I just have those moments kind of going, what if this is all just made up? 
Now, thankfully, those moments are quite rare and don't last very long. But, you know, doubt is a normal part of the Christian life. After all, we're asked to believe some pretty massive, life-changing ideas that clash with what other people believe. And you know what? Sometimes those doubts can be so big in people's minds that they walk away from Christianity altogether. I've seen it happen to people that I met at uni. I'm sure you've seen it too, or at least you've heard about it. In fact, it seems pretty widespread at the moment with lots of famous people uh, going through what's now being called a deconversion. Uh, Joshua Harris, you may have heard that name. He wrote the, the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It was famous, you know, maybe for another gener- previous generation of Christians. Or maybe you've heard of Rhett and Link, two famous YouTubers. And it's not just celebrities. Uh, there are many people who were wounded by the collapse of Mars Hill Church and have since walked away from Jesus. When Christians deconvert, it can be painful to watch and read about. It's confusing and disorientating. And it can lead to big doubts in our own minds. Let me be honest with you. The reason why I mention Rhett and Link, you may not have heard of them, but they are YouTubers that I followed for years and years online. I've invested many hours listening to their podcasts, uh, watching their YouTube videos. And so I was excited. I remember the day when I learned that they were Christians. Uh, They mentioned faith in a graduation speech. And then I saw them on the What's in the Bible videos appearing as the fabulous Bentley brothers singing Bible songs. It was during lockdown that I learned that they had deconverted quite publicly, posted videos about it. And I just couldn't bring myself to grapple with that news at that time. And so I haven't watched one of their videos for over two years now. So why is it that Christians deconvert? Now, I'm not so naive to think that I can explain it all here, that I can understand what goes on in people's hearts and minds. Each story is unique. But as I was thinking and praying through this passage that we're going to look at today, it occurred to me that there are at least three things that we commonly hear from Christians who deconvert. And this passage addresses each of them even if it's just in a small way. So see what you think. God is not clear. God is not consistent. God is not caring. There are many who would say that the Bible is confusing and contradictory. They'll say there's just not enough evidence. Perhaps even the evidence points away from God. And they'd argue that if God were real, he'd just be clear and he'd answer all of my questions. Others might think that God is not consistent. Perhaps he's not consistent with himself because, you know, he says that he loves people, but then why are people going to hell? What's more often the case is that God is seen as not consistent with what we might expect today of a God. You know, he doesn't line up with what we think are the ideal political values or moral code. And still others could think that God is not caring. Perhaps they were hurt by the church because of how Christians treated them. Perhaps they struggled with sin or doubt and felt that God did nothing to help them. Perhaps they prayed to God in the face of oppression or abuse and he didn't answer their prayer. I'm sure there are many other reasons, but I feel that these three would sit right at the top. God is not clear. God is not consistent. God is not caring. 
let's be honest, these thoughts go through the minds of all Christians at some point. But Jesus offers us some guidance here in John 10, verses 22 to 42, as he speaks with some Jews who had massive doubts about him. They felt that Jesus was not clear or consistent. And so his response was to point them back to his divine deeds, which challenged them, those who refused to believe, but his divine deeds bring comfort to those who will believe. So perhaps you're listening today and you consider yourself to have already deconverted. If that's the case, then I hope that you'll at least come with me as we journey through this passage. You have an open mind to consider what it is that Jesus has to say. So let's begin by exploring the first one where Jesus, uh, where the Jews demand Jesus be clearer. If you have a look at our passage, you'll see that John paints the scene for us in verses 22 to 24. You can see them there. Uh, Jesus in Jerusalem, it's during the festival of dedication, he's walking in Solomon's colonnade. Then a group of Jews circle around him looking for an argument. Have a look what they say. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Have you ever felt like that before? You just wish that Jesus would be clearer. You know, you, you read a parable and you're like, Jesus, why can't you just talk simply? You come across people with all sorts of different views about Jesus and they, they can't agree and you wonder, you know, why didn't Jesus just write everything down nice and plainly so there'd be no confusion? Well, it's not that simple. You see, it's one thing for Jesus to say that he's the Messiah. It's another thing for people to know what that means. So you notice that John very subtly mentions that this interaction took place during the festival of dedication. And as we keep seeing in John's gospel, these feasts and special days are kind of the backdrop to lots of miracles and conversations that Jesus had, and they help us to understand what people were thinking and, and what happened in those interactions. I'll give an example. If I say, wow, look at that tree. If it's Christmas time, you'll have a different picture in your mind compared to today. Well, the festival of dedication was an important time for the Jews because it celebrated victory over a cruel invader a couple of centuries prior. There was a Greek king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It's a cool name, isn't it? And he'd oppressed the Jews, he'd desecrated their temple and set up something called the abomination that caused desolation. You may know that phrase because it's in the latter part of the book of Daniel. Daniel actually was a prophet who prophesied these events centuries before they occurred. Now, the Bible doesn't record the history of what happened in those days, but we can learn from other Jewish sources that there was a man named Judas Maccabeus, and he led a revolt that successfully drove Antiochus and his army out of Jerusalem. The Jews then celebrated for eight days and rededicated the temple. Hence, the annual festival of dedication, which we also know today as Hanukkah. So when the Jews are asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? They are no doubt thinking about Judas Maccabeus. They're looking for a new warrior king who can drive out the Roman oppressors, the next lot of bad guys. And so if Jesus simply says, yes, I'm the Messiah, well, then they may either want to raise up an army to back him or hand him over to the Romans as a rebel. That's why Jesus' answer is so important. 
So let's jump into the next section where Jesus shows that their problem is their lack of belief, not his lack of clarity. Have a look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Wait, did we miss something? Is there a verse earlier in John where Jesus says, Behold, I am the Messiah? Well, no, there's not. And that's the point. You see, Jesus didn't tell them in a direct, blunt way. He told them through his teaching and his miracles. Remember in our sermon series, we keep coming back to this idea that Jesus' miracles in John are signs that point to his true identity. Can I quote John 20 for you again? You know it by now, surely. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So by not speaking as plainly as the Jews might like, Jesus is actually being even clearer. So he's not simply giving himself a title, he's explaining what that title means. He's revealing his identity all throughout his public ministry. You see, he's not the warrior king who's come to smash the Romans and set up Israel as a political nation state that would conquer the world. He's the suffering Messiah who came to care for the weak, the suffering, the sick, the outcast. He shares in their pain and shame. He bears these things even to the cross. This is the loving king, a servant king. And he came to establish a kingdom that doesn't grow through powers being overturned and nations being conquered. It actually grows like a mustard seed. It starts off small and grows slowly. It doesn't grow by kingdoms being defeated, but by hearts being set free as individuals fall under the loving rule of Jesus the Christ. And also his ministry is not primarily about dealing with evil out there, but in here. He came to deal with sin because that's the root cause of oppression and injustice, suffering, conflict. You see, the problem is not that Jesus lacks clarity. Rather, it's these particular Jews lack faith. And after all, there are plenty of Jews who believed. We keep seeing that in John's Gospel. But this group of Jews simply refused to believe and so they closed their ears to the words of Jesus. That's what he means when he says to them, you are not my sheep. So see how he continues in the following verses. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So we're going to pack these verses a little bit more later on. There's some really incredible and exciting truths in there. But for now, I want us to consider this idea of belief. You see, there are those who would say they've deconverted because the Bible just isn't clear. You know, They've looked at all of the evidence and they're just not convinced. You know, Jesus doesn't make sense. God contradicts himself. It's obviously just all made up. What Jesus wants us to understand here is that there is a time for asking questions seeking answers, wrestling with challenging ideas, debating. 
But there's also a time for admitting that perhaps you just don't want to believe. And this can stem from all sorts of underlying reasons, but what they have in common is a desire for Christianity to just not be true. You see, facts and arguments will only get you so far. That's true of anything we believe in. You eventually have to step forward in faith. Now, I think the Christian faith is reasonable. There's enough for you to trust in Jesus, but if you refuse to believe, then no amount of logical statements, proof texts, personal accounts from Christians will make any difference. Sometimes people just need to have the intellectual integrity and admit that they just don't want to believe and they don't care about the evidence. They don't want to be part of Jesus' flock. Because ultimately there's something that they consider to be more important but they don't want to give up for Jesus. Well, Jesus' conversation with the Jews takes a turn now because their problem is no longer his clarity. Now they're worried about the consistency of what he says. They've just heard him say something deeply troubling and so they demand that Jesus would fit their framework, which is our next point. In verse 31, the Jews pick up stones because they want to execute him on the spot. He's really gotten them riled up. And so have a look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these, for which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. See, they're concerned about that little phrase Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You see, they understand what he means. People will have lots of different ideas today and try to interpret in lots of different ways. But it's clear that Jesus is not just saying that he and God are of a common mind, a common mission. This is not about unity of thought or purpose. He's speaking about a unity of being, a unity of essence. In other words, Jesus shares in the divine nature such that he himself is divine, he is God. If anyone ever tells you that Jesus never said that he was God, take them to this passage. Because the Jews get it. That's why they're so angry. They're angry because Jesus doesn't fit their framework. How can a man be God, they think? Surely this is blasphemy. Let's remember that the Jews, right from the beginning, had been taught that there's only one God. Do you know the famous words of Deuteronomy 6, also known as the Shema? It starts like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they were told that God was invisible and without form. You, you cannot make a representation of him. You can't make an idol. And here is this man standing in front of them saying, guess what, guys, I'm the invisible God in human form. No wonder they think this is blasphemy. And many people today still claim this is blasphemy, whether they are religious Jews who are not Christians, whether they are Muslims who go, yeah, Jesus is a prophet, but he's not God. But see, they have their frameworks and they refuse to see how Jesus' claim can fit. Well, Jesus would say the same thing to them today as he did to the Jews back then. So we'll see our next point. Jesus shows that their problem is their narrow thinking and their ignoring of his works. So we might expect Jesus to stick to his argument about the miracles. 
Instead, he enters into this kind of weird philosophical, theological debate. And it's a bit tricky, so take a deep breath, focus your minds for a minute, and we'll get stuck into it. The Jews are arguing that the word God cannot apply to Jesus. His response is to quote Psalm 82 and to make an argument, which I've listed in your sermon outline just to make sure we get the wording right, goes like this. If those empowered by God's spirit and word can be called God's, how much more so can Jesus be called God's son? You'll see what he says in verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are God's. If he called them God's, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. So we're going to read out Psalm 82 in its entirety. If you've got the welcome card open, you can see it there, or if you've got your Bible open, flip over to Psalm 82. I think it's good to get the whole context. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. This is now God speaking. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. I'm just going to cut to the chase here. This psalm is speaking to the rulers or leaders of Israel. Because we can see what their job is. Their job is to defend the weak and the needy, to uphold the cause of the uh, up, uphold just causes. But they're failing in this, and so God is rightly angry at them. So the key part that Jesus is picking up on is that when they are called gods, the psalm is clearly referring to humans. So the Hebrew word there is Elohim. Have you heard that word before, Elohim? And we typically translate it as God. But in a different context, it might refer to a lesser being like an angel or a false god or even certain people with a special role like here. We need the context to understand it. And in this psalm, that word Elohim is used interchangeably for God and these rulers. So if these men, who were guided by God's Spirit, they had the word of God, if they could be called gods, then how much more could Jesus be called God? After all, he's the one who was set apart in heaven, who was the word of God, sent to earth, became flesh. Now, if you've got questions about that, please come and talk to me later. I've got lots more I could say. So rather than using Psalm 82, though, to keep going and to then kind of firmly prove his divinity, Jesus refers back to his works in verses 37 and 38. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The divine deeds of Jesus challenge those who won't believe. So this shows us two important ideas about understanding and defending the Trinity. You know what I mean by the Trinity, right? That God is one. He's one God who exists as three persons at the same time, 
all of whom are equally and fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In this passage, Jesus is giving us new categories, new ways of understanding God. Because again, if he had just said, I am God, then we might think he means the, the totality of God was existing in this space, in this man. But instead, what did he say? I and the Father are one. So there's a whole bunch of new categories in there, things that the Jews had never considered. There's still one God, but this God exists as persons in relationship. It's pretty mind-bending, isn't it? But it actually fits with the wider teaching of the Bible. And so those who tend to reject the Trinity, reject that Jesus could be God, do so because I think their thinking is too rigid and narrow. Perhaps they conceive of God as basically just a more powerful version of themselves. And since we are a single being with a single personhood, then we assume that God is the same. So we need to expand our categories. But also, we need to go where the evidence lies. You see, the early Christians, they didn't worship Jesus as God uh, just because of the arguments. It was actually because of the things that he did. He did things that only God could do. His miracles attested to his divinity. How's your head going? Still keeping up? A couple of people are keeping up. Um, So it's okay if you're not following this. I'm happy to chat to you more afterwards. But what I want you to get now is this. Jesus is charged with being inconsistent with Jewish teachings. But he shows them that the scriptures actually back him up. You see, ultimately, it's the Jews who are inconsistent because they're judging Jesus by a limited or a human framework. And I want to argue that's what often happens in a deconversion. Is it someone in the church has been influenced by the media and movies and friends and they find that their framework for understanding the world no longer lines up with Jesus and so obviously Jesus is the one with the problem and they push him aside. Or someone has grown up in the church but their Christian understanding hasn't matured and it can't bear the weight of grown-up life. And so they're more convinced by a YouTuber than they are by their children's Bible, and rightly so. They need to get a grown-up Bible and a grown-up faith. So what might this look like? Well, imagine a guy named Jack who's just started his first job and he's lived a bit of a sheltered life. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but, you know, life focused on church and going to a Christian school. And his workplace, he meets all sorts of people he's never come across before. Atheists, Buddhists, lesbians, transgender men, transgender women. And he finds it hard to know what it means to work alongside pe- these people in light of what the Bible teaches. One of the atheist girls is really cute and takes an interest in Jack and suddenly he finds conflicting desires arising within his heart. He, he knows what Jesus says about sex and marriage, but does that even make sense these days? This is where Jake's, Jack's faith is tested. Will he trust Jesus? Or does he just want to fit in and fulfill his own desires? You see, he might argue that Christianity, it's, it's not consistent. It's not really that clear anyway. What does Jesus even think? It doesn't fit with the modern world, you know. We're, we're in the 21st century now. People, come on. But what would Jesus' response be? 
he might suggest that maybe Jack's not really listening to the voice of the Good Shepherd. Maybe he doesn't actually understand what the gospel means, what it means to love unbelievers, what it means to uphold the Bible's teaching on sexuality and why it's a good thing. But most importantly, it seems like Jack just doesn't get Jesus, hasn't actually put the time in to really understand him. And so just like the Jews, Jack needs to consider the divine deeds of Jesus, which back up that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and he is worth putting his faith in. Jesus' deeds are a challenge to those who won't believe, but they're also a comfort to those who will believe. We're going to go back to verses 28 and 29 now. And so I want us to consider now that Jesus brings comfort to believers because not even our doubts or our deconstruction can snatch us from his hands. As I said earlier, there are kind of three main objections about God that we find in this passage and that I think people would often have in their minds as they're deconstructing, deconverting. And one of those is that God is not caring. Well, these verses that I'm about to read out show just how much God actually does care. In speaking about his sheep, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. In challenging those who refuse to believe, Jesus offers comfort to those who will. He says that if you are one of his sheep, then you are certain to receive eternal life and you will never perish. It's not to say that your life now will be easy and free of suffering, that you won't have challenges, you won't sometimes have doubts or wonder, but but he's saying one day your life will be perfected and the life you live today is the one that will continue into eternity. We know this is true because Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life only to take it up again. He's defeated sin, death and the devil. And he was raised up to glory so that he can share his resurrection life with anyone who believes in him. He's overcome the world. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. There is no power that can steal his people away from him, not even death. And one of the reasons for this is that the hand of Jesus and the hand of the Father are one. That's what he's saying. So that the good shepherd has the backing of the Almighty Father. He says there's no one greater than the Father. So this means that if you are one of Jesus' sheep, you will not fall away. You will not fall away because no one can snatch you. No celebrity, no abuser, no friend, no suffering but you'll also not fall away because of your own wanderings. See, even in your own wanderings, he will hold you fast. This is really important. It's really important when it comes to those times when we might reassess our faith. You know, Christians can actually go through a deconstruction process. It's when we look at what we believe and go, where have cultural assumptions or wrong ideas crept in? Where's my framework? not actually fitting with the Bible. I need to deconstruct things and rebuild it biblically. We examine where we maybe have taken a worldly idea like 1950s gender roles and treated it like a biblical command. Deconstruction doesn't have to lead to deconversion. 
In fact, when it's done properly, it will lead to a stronger faith. And we can do it safely because Jesus cares for us. Jesus keeps us. He's the good shepherd. That's right. Even in your doubts, even in your deconstruction, even in your depression, in your despair, even in your dark deeds, you will be kept safe in the hands of Jesus and in the hands of the Father. And that's because not even you are greater than God the Father. I've heard people say, well, no one can snatch me out of the hands, but surely I can jump out of God's hand. Do you really think that the Father would send his Son to die on the cross for you? And that he would send his Holy Spirit to bring you from spiritual death to life only to not be able to keep you in your salvation? Do you really think that your will is greater than God's will? That is not the case. My friends, if you are one of Jesus' sheep, then you will always be one of his sheep. You may wander, but he will never let go of you. You may have heard this idea described as the perseverance of the saints, the idea that Christians cannot fall away. Well, based on this shepherd, we could, based on this passage, we could call it the good shepherd's unbreakable grasp. Now, that might be a comfort for those who are Christians, but it might raise concerns about those we know who have deconverted. What does that mean? That's a huge topic, and we don't have time for it today. But let's look at what Jesus says. He says, His sheep hear his voice, and his sheep cannot stop being his sheep. So if someone walks away, and they are one of his sheep, they will come back. And if someone walks away and never comes back, then they were never his sheep to begin with. Now, that's not up to us to judge. That's up to the good shepherd to judge. What this means is there's no such thing as a deconversion. Maybe a deconversion from the community of faith, but there is no leaving the hand of God. It's not possible. That's a, that's a difficult truth, isn't it? But it's also good news because it means that we can be safe to wrestle with our doubts, to ask big questions, to reassess our framework, to even deconstruct our views, because in the end, you will remain safe in the hands of Jesus. That's because, guess what? Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, and his divine deeds prove it. So we'll see what happened after Jesus' encounter with the Jews. We can read in these verses that Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing, that's John the Baptist, in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him and they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. What's your response to Jesus? Do you feel he's not clear enough, not consistent enough, not caring enough? Or do you have faith like these people? You see, this book was written so that we might believe that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have eternal life. That's exactly what he's argued in debating the Jews. So maybe you're here today, you're not, not sure about Jesus. Maybe you do believe that God is not clear or consistent or caring. 
But perhaps like the Jews, you need to reconsider your position. Can I invite you? Keep studying Jesus' divine deeds. Come back to church each week as we study these things. They will certainly challenge you, but ultimately they'll reveal to you that there's only one way to have everlasting life, and that's by trusting in Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus, then I hope you would uh, draw reassurance from the picture of your good shepherd holding you tightly in his hand, even when you doubt, even when you stumble. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, whose divine deeds challenge those who won't believe, but comforts those who will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful teaching from Jesus. Thank you that he is the good shepherd who keeps us tightly in his hands. And so may we find comfort from that reassurance. Amen.